for inviting me. It's, it's great to be here. So, my paper is rather long, so I'd I better start right away. In 2006, Bela Zabaros published an article titled Wittgenstein and Musical Formalism. In this article, Zabaros argued that the attribution of lifelong musical formalism to Wittgenstein, quote, obscures the role that music played in the development of his philosophy of language. Such a mistaken view, Zabaros then wrote, was put forth in my 2005 article, Wittgenstein and the Conditions of Musical Communication, which argued that for Wittgenstein, the understanding of music is the ability to follow the rules that are constitutive of a musical system. In his subsequent monograph, Wittgenstein as a musical tone poet, Zabados takes up the case again, rehearsing and expanding his argument against the formalist interpretation of Wittgenstein, though in the book he doesn't mention any proponents of that interpretation. So what I want to do now is to take this chance to revisit the debate and defend the interpretation I advocated already in 2005. What I find dissatisfying in Zabados's view is the treatment it gives to Wittgenstein's thought on the one hand and Hanslick's essay on the musically beautiful on the other. Zabados reads Hanslick as advocating a strong normativist theory of what counts as good music. According to him, Hanslick's musical formalism is an essentialist theory hanging on to a transcendent Platonic view of a unified musical structure underneath the deceptive surface of music. Formalism is, Zabaros claims, committed to an essentialist idea of beauty as a single property in the music that corresponds to the correct application of the adjective musically beautiful. And three, aims at formulating or following explicit rules of music. Finally, he claims, formalism suppresses the connection between music and its cultural context by promoting the autonomy of music to be encountered by the listener in a disinterested manner. Now, Zabaros grants that the early Wittgenstein, the Wittgenstein of the Tractatus, may have been a formalist. This is because, according to him, quote, the author of the Tractatus was still a theorist, in particular a Platonist about meaning or beauty in music and language. End of quote. Such theoretical orientation is manifest in Wittgenstein's early attempt to formulate an essentialist theory of language that aims at uncovering logical form beneath the conventions of everyday language. Analogously, Zabaros suggests, the early Wittgenstein aims at unearthing the structure of composition from the morass of feelings and irrelevant associations that music brings in its, in its way. Referring to Wittgenstein's 1915 remark that, and this is Wittgenstein, a musical tune is a kind of tautology, Zabaros claims that for the early Wittgenstein, musical themes show the structure of music just as tautologies show the structure of the world. However, Zabaros argues, the later Wittgenstein threw overboard Hanslick's musical formalism for the reason that it isolated music from the rest of the culture and left it alone and bereft of significance. Wittgenstein couldn't possibly have been a formalist, he argues, because musical formalism is a philosophical theory and holding such a theory is consistent with the philosophical orientation of the early, but not the later Wittgenstein. And two, by contrast to Hanslick's alleged commitment to an essentialist notion of beauty, the later Wittgenstein takes beauty to be irrelevant for aesthetics. Moreover, three, Wittgenstein, according to him, is hostile to the formalist emphasis on rules of music and even rejects the attempt to capture linguistic meaning by reference to rules. Finally, four, by contrast to the disinterested aesthetic attitude emphasized by formalists, Wittgenstein encourages emotional and personal involvement with music and stresses the cultural, cultural resonances in a work of art. Zabados acknowledges that in Wittgenstein's later work, 
we do find remarks that seem to support musical formalism. The statement that music expresses itself appears in Wittgenstein's writings repeatedly, and we find numerous references to the rules of music. Besides, Wittgenstein compares the listener who doesn't remember simple tunes or fails to recognize when the bass enters to an animal who simply reacts to music without aesthetic understanding. At the outset, these remarks accord with Hanswick's account. After all, Hanswick argues that music expresses itself, claims that musical aesthetics ought to focus on the theoretic grammatical rules of music, and compares the pathological, that is empirically conditioned, mode of listening to the responses of animals. Still, Zabaros argues, to take these similarities at face value, as I have done and still do, betrays insufficient awareness of the later Wittgenstein as a dialectical thinker. Hence, the task Zabaros sets himself is to disarm such passages of the impression of formalism. Now, in the interest of saving time, I'll skip the first section of this paper, which discusses the notion of theory as employed by Wittgenstein and Hanslick, and focus instead on the remaining three arguments pertaining to the notions of beauty, rules, and the extra-musical significance of music. So, here we go. First, beauty. Zabaros writes that Hanslick, quote, lumps all good music together under the rubric of the musically beautiful, construes it as an adjective, and then looks for a single property in the music that corresponds to its correct application. Whereas, according to Wittgenstein, he writes, such a move is a ground floor mistake. Now, it is quite true that in his lectures on aesthetics, Wittgenstein rejects the idea of a single property, labeled the beautiful. In 1933, Wittgenstein criticizes the view for assuming that the beautiful is, is an ingredient in beautiful things and could be sort of caught in a bottle by itself, like an essence. In 1938, he states, the subject aesthetics is very big and entirely misunderstood as far as I can see. The use of such words as beautiful is even more apt to be misunderstood if you look at the linguistic form of sentences in which it occurs, then, sorry, if you look at the linguistic form of sentences in which it occurs, than most other words. Beautiful is an adjective, so you are inclined to say this has a certain quality, that of being beautiful. In accordance with his later descriptive method of philosophy, Wittgenstein recommends instead that we look at how people actually use the term beautiful. However, so it is quite true that Wittgenstein rejects the idea that there is a single property labeled the beautiful. But Hanslick does not, Pache Zabaros, advocate a single property called the musically beautiful. According to Hanslick, there is the Wittgenstein quote that I just gave. Then there is the Hanslick quote. According to Hanslick, we shouldn't think of musical forms as empty bottles that may or may not be filled with the champagne of intellectual content. For musical champagne, has the characteristic of growing with the bottle. In fact, the mistake that Wittgenstein attributes to aesthetics in general, namely the mistake of focusing on a, looking for a single property, property titled the beautiful, uh, Hanslick attributes to musical aesthetics. According to Hanslick, aesthetics of poetry, literature, and visual arts have, quote, discarded the delusion that the aesthetics of a particular art could be achieved by merely adapting the general metaphysical concept of beauty. The aesthetics of music ought to take the same route and do so by focusing on the concrete, sonically moved, audible forms. In fact, as Jeffrey Paisant, the uh, translator of the 1986 uh, edition of Hanslick's essay writes, or argues, for Hanslick, the musically beautiful, the key phrase of his essay, is simply an equivalent of 
sonically moved forms or tonally moved forms. It is just another expression for the autonomous content of music in all its variety, not a uniform property that some musical works have and others do not. Hanslick's term, the musically beautiful, is not an evaluative term either. He writes, the entire course of the present investigation does not declare any should be, but rather considers only what is. No particular musical ideal may be deduced from that standpoint as authentic beauty. Rather, it may merely be demonstrated what beauty is in every style in the same way, even in the most opposed ones. In my reading, Hanslick's recommended approach of considering only what is actually a course with Wittgenstein's later remark that philosophy just puts everything before us and neither explains nor deduces anything. It also accords with Wittgenstein's view on what thesis in philosophy would look like, namely that, as Wittgenstein writes, it would never be possible to debate them because everybody would agree with them. For what would it mean to deny that music consists of sonically moved forms? To state as much is simply to state the truism. So why does Hanswick choose the musically beautiful as the key phrase of his view, if he does not subscribe to the idea of a property of beauty common to all musical works? or to some musical works. In my reading, the reason for this choice lies in the historical background of Hanslick's argument, specifically in his allegiance to the Kantian framework of aesthetics. For Kant, beauty is not a property that we ascribe to objects by subsuming them under a determinate concept, the concept of beauty. Rather, for Kant, the beautiful is a type of aesthetic judgment that ought to be distinguished from pathologically conditioned judgments of the agreeable. While judgments of the agreeableness of food and wine are based on the subject's empirically conditioned reactions to objects, the judgment of the beautiful arises out of a disinterested contemplation of the form of the sensuously given representation of the object. Given that judgments of the agreeable reflect empirical, empirical laws of nature, that is, follow the pattern of stimulus and response, we cannot attribute universal validity to them, but treat them as contingent preferences. I like this sort of wine, and perhaps you don't. By contrast, judgments of beauty are presented as universally valid. When I judge something to be beautiful, I claim that the relation between the form of the object and my pleasure is necessary, despite the fact that I cannot conceptually justify my judgment. Hansik's account of the musically beautiful follows Kant in these respects. For Hanslick, the musically beautiful cannot be conceptually explained. Hanslick writes that it is, quote, independent and not in need of external content, something that resides solely in the tones and in the artistic connection. This view corresponds to Kant's requirement that the judgment of beauty cannot be grounded on concepts, nor leads to concepts. It also corresponds to Kant's general emphasis on the form of the representation as the proper object of aesthetic contemplation independent of subjective charms or emotions. Moreover, it corresponds to Kant's specific dictum of the composition as that which is properly judged to be beautiful in music. Finally, in accordance with Kant's crucial distinction between judgments of the agreeable and judgments of the beautiful, Hanslick draws this famous distinction between two approaches to music. The first pathological approach is only concerned with the subjective and contingent effects of music and thereby aligns music with 
mere products of nature, as he writes, like the sweet fragrance of an occasion. The term pathological here is used in... <laughs> so here, Hanslick's way of using the term pathological is precisely the same as Kant's, namely, uh, it refers to an empirically conditioned response to a sensible stimulus, which is characteristic of judgments of the agreeable, that influence animals as well. By contrast to this pathological way of approaching music, the listener who approaches music in the second aesthetic manner listens to the piece for its own sake, not allowing music to sink to the levels of sensuous natural stimuli, as one writes. Now, quite strikingly, Wittgenstein's longest sustained discussion on the beautiful, given in his lectures in 1933, just recently published, uh, the lecture notes by G.E. Moore of these lectures have just recently been published, accords with Hanslick's position and does so precisely by following the Kantian line of thought I just summarized. Wittgenstein replaces the property-based approach to aesthetics by describing aesthetic judgments made of such phenomena as music, architecture, and even the choosing of a wallpaper, an example we find in Kant's critique, and an example that has been much ridiculed. Moreover, Wittgenstein repeatedly stresses that there is an important distinction between the agreeable and the beautiful. We actually find in these lecture notes by G.E. Moore this line saying, I said beautiful is not equal to the agreeable, and then Wittgenstein goes on to explain this. Uh, moreover, Wittgenstein here is using the, ter the term uh, agreeable specifically in the Kantian sense, to refer to feelings that are causally induced by smells or taste of food. And finally, Wittgenstein identifies the normative force of judgments of beauty as the key difference between the agreeable and the beautiful. The agreeable is a matter of causal contingent connections between the object and the subject, but the beautiful is not. Wittgenstein states, but if we meant by beautiful, giving me stomach ache or pleasure, then it would be merely a symptom. Experience would tell us whether it does or not. In accordance with his early and late insistence that logic or grammar is not an experimental matter, Wittgenstein assigns a non-experimental status for aesthetics as well. Psychology for Wittgenstein is not relevantly related to aesthetics because psychological explanations are given by reference to causes, whereas aesthetic explanations, like philosophical explanations in general, aim at giving reasons by showing new connections within an aesthetic system. Accordingly, Aesthetics is descriptive, Wittgenstein states, just like philosophy in general for him ought to be. Like Hanslick, Wittgenstein draws a distinction between the merely pleasure-seeking and aesthetic ways of listening to music, connecting the latter to musical understanding. He states, and it's there, we use the phrase a man is musical not so as to call a man musical if he says when a piece of music is played, any more than we call a dog musical if it wags its tail when music is played. The dog, just like the elephant, bear, and horse that Hanslick mentions as examples that are affected by music, reacts to music mechanically based on natural, physical, and neurological laws. But in Wittgenstein's view, we don't apply the notion of understanding to the dog, just like we don't say that dogs lie or talk to themselves. This is because the notions of understanding, lying, and talking to oneself are, for Wittgenstein, phenomena that become meaningful only within a grammatical system that grounds the possibility of giving reasons. Hence, Wittgenstein states, if I ask, 
Why do you like this tune? And answer is because it reminds me of my grandmother. This doesn't interest me. It doesn't interest Wittgenstein, nor any other formalist, because the association with one's grandmother is only contingently related to the musical tune. By contrast, aesthetic reasons are more like observations of the aesthetic system itself. Recall that according to Zabados, the later Wittgenstein rejects cold disinterestedness as an essential feature of aesthetic judgment and encourages emotional and personal involvement with music instead. Here I would like to point out that neither Kant nor Hanslick, major proponents of the disinterested aesthetic attitude, denies that judgments of beauty are grounded in personal responses to something particular. The requirement of the non-conceptuality of judgments of beauty actually entails that the sensibly given forms must be perceived by the subject as we cannot make aesthetic judgments by applying conceptual rules or by imitating others. What disinterestedness requires is rather that contingent, empirically conditioned feelings of agreeableness are abstracted away from the judgment. Beauty ought to be contemplated for its own sake as beauty has no purpose at all beyond itself, as Hanslick writes, and doing so echoes Kant. And Wittgenstein, he follows suit. He grants that Perhaps the most important thing in aesthetics is what may be called aesthetic reactions. For example, discontent, disgust, and discomfort, thus marking the subjective response to an aesthetic phenomenon. And yet, at the same time, he warns against assimilating such reactions to merely subjective feelings or reactions. He states, suppose you find a base too heavy, that it moves too much. You aren't saying, if it moves less, it will be more agreeable to me. That it should be quieter is an end in itself, not a means to an end. In my reading, Wittgenstein's reason for emphasizing the distinction between the agreeable and the beautiful echoes Kant's view that judgments of beauty require, to put the point in Kantian terminology, a transcendental rather than an experimental ground. In the Tractatus, in his early philosophies, Wittgenstein actually called aesthetic, aesthetics transcendental. In his later philosophy, we don't find the term transcendental, most likely because it carries the problematic connotations of universality. Still, Wittgenstein does not give up the gen general point that aesthetic judgments cannot be explained by reference to empirical facts. This is the core idea. If aesthetics were about contingent likes or dislikes, then psychology could provide an exhaustive story about aesthetics. But when we make aesthetic judgments, we are saying more, or at least in Wittgenstein's view, we are saying more. Wittgenstein states, when I say this base moves too much, I don't mean merely it gives me such and such an impression, because if I did, I should have to be content with the answer, well, it doesn't give me that impression. But we're not content with that. That Wittgenstein takes aesthetic judgments to have normative force distinct from empirical statements is evident from his own examples. Here is one. One example of an aesthetic question is a question about harmony. In a book of harmony, you find no trace of psychology. It says, you must not make this transition. We are not looking for a single property, but say that a certain choice in an aesthetic system is correct, right, wrong, or even necessary. That the bass is too loud, that it moves too much, that it should be quieter. These are normative judgments in the sense that they evoke what Wittgenstein calls an aesthetic ideal of how specific features of the object ought to be arranged for them to click. Hence, 
what looking at real aesthetic discussions reveals is that the sort of explanation one is looking for when one is puzzled by an aesthetic impression is not a causal explanation, Wittgenstein writes. Not one corroborated by experience or by statistic, statistics as to how people react. And this brings us to the second difference Zabaros claims there to be between Hauslick and Wittgenstein, namely a difference pertaining to the role and relevance of rules in musical practices. Treating Wagner's caricaturist character Beckmesser as the prototype of a formalist, Zabaros claims that formalism attempts to create or capture musical meaning via formulating or following explicit rules. Such, he writes, obsessive preoccupation with rules not only fails to do justice to that musical tradition, to the musical tradition, sorry, but leads to a lifeless mechanical repetition. According to Zabados, Wittgenstein rejects a rule-based formalist approach even in his later philosophy of language because the attempt to capture the meaning of words and propositions through a rule only leads to a regress of interpretations. Now, if formalism advocated explicit rules as the key to the understanding of music or language, then Zabados's criticism would be to the point with respect to both musical formalism and Wittgenstein's later philosophy of language. But again, I think the interpretation is misguided on both accounts. When Hanslick writes about musical rules, he is not referring to a manual of explicit and strict rules that Wagner's Beckmesser cites to repudiate Walter von Stolzing's original contest song. The rules that Hanslick has in mind are rather the basic structuring principles of the Western tonal system. Moreover, as suggested by his famous slogan, according to which the content of music is sonically moved forms, the musical forms are in dynamic movement that happens by, happens by sounding. The rules of music are thus given in the sounding reality of music itself, in musical performances, rather than in a, in a book of uh, manual of rules. Similarly, when the later Wittgenstein writes about the rules of language, as well as music, he is not interested in explicit and fixed rules. In 1938, Wittgenstein states, I wonder if I have it here. No, I'm sorry. Uh, what I call a rule of grammar, this is Wittgenstein, is not what, uh, is not what would be found in grammar books. Ordinary grammar rules are about the order of words, gender, etc. No one could learn the use of language from such a grammar. It only gives a tiny bit of rules about the use of language. It is chiefly designed to make you avoid mistakes. So, while Wittgenstein's later philosophy is undeniably formulated by reference to grammar, rules and rule following, this notion should not be read as indicating such explicit and fixed rules that we find in ordinary grammar books. Rather, for Wittgenstein, the rules have life in practice. They are given in concrete instances of their application and learned by examples and training. So, the gist of the formalist position is this. Music and its rules just like language and the rules of language, are not independent of one another. Instead, the relation between the two is internal, constitutive, or grammatical, to use uh, Wittgensteinian terminology. A given musical rule, for example, that in tonal music the dominant is followed by the tonic that functions as a re resolution to the tension built up by the, by the dominant, is this kind of a rule is primarily given in actual musical works or performances thereof. And the constitutive relation goes in the other direction too. Musical works themselves are made possible by the rules they exemplify. The composer could not compose anything without using some musical rules, any more than we could express conceptual thoughts 
without using language. As Wittgenstein states, it is only in a language that I can mean something by something. So when Haslick states that the content of music is sonically moved forms, one way to understand his point is by reference to the constitutive relation between music and its rules. If the musical forms and their movement were subject to external criteria, drawn from a political agenda, a poem to which the music is composed, or an attempt to musically resemble the, the psychological dynamic of human emotions, for example, then the resulting music would be heteronymous in the sense of following laws or principles external to itself. By contrast, the view advocated by Hans Flick is that the very possibility of music and the relevant criteria for the understanding and appreciation of music reside in the musical system itself. And this idea I think we find also in Wittgenstein's later thought, who writes that disputes don't break out among mathematicians, say, over whether a rule has been obeyed or not, this is part of the framework on which the working of our language is based. So, according to Zabat, again, the formalist emphasis on rules makes music lifeless and mechanical. In my view, the motivation is the exact opposite. In the Kantian tradition, to which both Hanslick and Wittgenstein in my reading belong, the distinction between mechanic and artistic corresponds to the distinction between empirically conditioned and free, the contrast between pathological and aesthetic. In Wittgenstein's later philosophy, this very distinction plays a central role. Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein's emphasis on the arbitrary, conventional rules of language reflects his conviction that the meaning and the understanding of language are not mechanistic phenomena explicable by reference to mental states such as dispositions or laws of nature. Rather than being a mere fact of nature, understanding is a normative phenomenon. It makes sense to talk about understanding only against the possibility of misunderstanding. And in order to distinguish between the two, we appeal to rules as criteria of correctness. The role of rules as criteria of understanding is exceptionally clear in Wittgenstein's lectures on aesthetics, where he's arguing against the assimilation of aesthetic judgments to empirically conditioned judgments. In 1938, he states, are aesthetic adjectives used in a musical criticism? You say, look at this transition, or the passage here is incoherent. The words you use are more akin to right and correct, as these words are used in ordinary speech, than to beautiful and lovely. So the words right and correct here mark a connection to rules that serve as the criteria of understanding. As pointed out above, a mere admiration of a musical work does not yet count as a sign of understanding. Instead, One's ability to give reasons for one's aesthetic judgment by appealing to the rules of music shows that one understands. Wittgenstein states, does this harmonize? No, the bass is not quite loud enough. He's really into bass. <laughs> the bass is not quite loud enough. Here I want something different. This is what we call appreciation. The possibility of appreciating music rests on the ability to follow music in the first place, just as the ability to admire English poetry requires that one knows English. Wittgenstein says, if I hadn't learned the rules, I wouldn't be able to make an aesthetic judgment. And only after one has been drilled in harmony and counterpoint, as Wittgenstein says, can one start to develop a feeling for the rules a notion that we find in Wittgenstein's remarks on aesthetics as well. Such personal feeling for the rules makes it possible for me to claim that while this tune does follow the rules I have originally learned, the rules of harmony and PowerPoint, I personally do not find it beautiful. 
In Wittgenstein's later view, communication by means of language requires agreement in definitions, but also, he writes queer as this may sound, in judgments. Similarly, the possibility of meaning something by musical phrases and understanding them rests on the shared rules of music. This does not make musical composition or understanding mechanical. The whole point of describing music by reference to arbitrary, autonomous, historically changing rules that are constitutive of music is to liberate music from the dominance of natural laws, regularities of human psychology, and also from the dominance of conceptual thought. That music follows its own rules makes it capable of rising above the mechanistic laws of nature, whether physical or psychological. That, I think, is a point that comes out in both in Hanslick's and Wittgenstein's case. Okay, final argument by Zavarzi. Zavarzi's final objection to the attribution of formalism to Wittgenstein is a variant of a classical objection to musical formalism. This is the claim that if music doesn't have any other content besides its own form, then music is mere play of sounds with no meaning, significance, or relevance other than providing entertainment for the listener. In this vein, Savaros argues that Wittgenstein rejected formalism because he saw, quote, a deep connectedness between understanding music and other aspects of culture it is embedded in, end of quote. According to Zavados, formalism is incapable of sustaining such a connection because a strict formalist insistence on, on music's radical autonomy suggests that music is alone and isolated from culture, he writes. But is that really the case? The operative assumption here is that if music were mere form, then it would be incapable of showing anything about reality and our place in it. As I see it, both Hanslick and Wittgenstein reject this very assumption. They both argue, grandly in their distinctive ways, that precisely as mere form, resisting translation into any other medium, music reveals something significant. Zavarosi's statement, according to which it is crucial to understand that music for Wittgenstein, for the later Wittgenstein, was not merely, if at all, a pleasing pattern of sounds, but connects with the ways we speak and with human forms of life, is indicative, I think, of his understanding of formalism. As I argued, Formalism does not treat musical forms as pleasing patterns of sound. The Kantian distinction between the agreeable and the beautiful that we find in Hanslick and Wittgenstein, and the corresponding distinction between pathological and aesthetic listeners, underscores that musical beauty is qualitatively different from the subjective pleasing effects of smoking, drinking, taking drugs, or a warm bath, or smelling a flower. These examples of merely pleasing effects taken from Hanslick's essay may be complemented by Wittgenstein's examples of tasting vanilla ice cream, coffee, or roast beef, and by Kant's example of enjoying sparkling wine from the canneries. For all three, Hanslick, Wittgenstein, and Kant, the appeal to such examples as examples of merely agreeable uh, effects serves to make the same point. While responses to such pleasing stimuli are determined by laws of nature, the disinterested contemplation of the sounding forms of music grounds the possibility of free judgments of beauty. Zavados further assumes that the primary way in which music can, can acquire broader significance is by having a direct connection to human emotions. He writes, Haslick was, or at, at least has been read as a narrow or traditional formalist, 
he not only asserted that the essence of music lies exclusively in its formal structure, but he also denied that music can be properly described in terms of feelings or emotions. But this is simply untrue. And this is what Hanslick himself writes. To characterize this musical expression of a theme, we often choose terms from our psychic life, like proud, disgruntled, tender, valiant, yearning. But we can also take the descriptions from other domains of life and call music fragrant, spring-fresh, hazy, chilly. For the description of musical character, feelings are just one phenomena, are just phenomena like others that offer similarities for description. We may use epithets of that sort with awareness of their figurative imagery. Indeed, we cannot do without them. But we must be aware of saying this music portrays pride and so forth. So Hanslick grants that as a matter of fact, we often use emotive terminology in describing music. He even concedes that we cannot do without such characterizations. Trouble arises only when we read such descriptions literally. For, in, for Hanslick, music does not speak through tones. It speaks only tones. Hence, Hanslick concludes, the heuristic contribution of emotions and other phenomena we evolve to describe music is that they offer us similarities of description. That's all. And this is an idea that we find in Wittgenstein's later work. A central way of providing aesthetic reasons in music, according to Wittgenstein, is by giving comparisons between the musical tune and something else. In the Philosophical Investigations, Wittgenstein provides an example of such a comparison. He writes, why is just this the pattern, pattern of variation in loudness and tempo? One would like to say, because I know what it's all about. But what is it all about? I should not be able to say. In order to explain, I could only compare it with something else which has the same rhythm. I mean the same pattern. Given that I shouldn't be able to say what the musical theme is about, all I can do to grasp the content of the theme is to pay attention to its rhythm, pattern or form. Again, as it is impossible to say, that is, discursively express the content of the musical theme, I can only compare the theme with something else that manifests the same pattern to convey my grasp of the musical tune to another person. Importantly, that something else should not be treated as the content of the theme, as the role of the comparison is simply to direct attention to the form that is already manifest in the musical theme itself. Nor can I force another one to accept my comparison. Wittgenstein writes, I give someone an explanation, say to him, it is as though. Then he says, yes, now I understand it. Or, yes, now I know how it is to be played. It is not, after all, as though I had given him compelling reasons for comparing this passage with this or that. I did not explain to him that remarks made by the composer show that this passage is supposed to represent this or that. Failing to see the point of any given comparison does not necessarily entail failure in the understanding of music, for comparisons are only loosely connected to the music's content. Yet, as the comparisons may succeed in drawing attention to the specific features of music itself, the effort to find concrete analogies for abstract musical structures is often worthwhile for the purposes of teaching, listening or performing music. Most importantly, given the unavailability of any inner subjective grounds to determine which comparison should be preferred over others, 
we should not treat such comparisons as literal descriptions of music's content. And now to the biggest uh, obstacle for the foreignist. Zavaros thinks that this view, what has been said so far, uh, strips away any significance that music might have, its ability to say anything or show anything significant about reality. But here is what I'd like to argue. By denying that music represents or is expressive of human emotions or other conceptual contents, formalism does not disconnect music from reality. Here is what Hanslip writes. Music is, in fact, an image, but one whose subject we cannot formulate in words and subordinate to our concepts. In music there is sense and order, but musical sense and order. It is a language that we speak and understand, but are unable to translate. One way to put this point is to say that sense and order are notions that are not limited to the realm of discursive thought, when discursive thought is understood according to the model of cognition as the subsumption of particulars on the general concepts. Such a view of cognition we find, for example, in Kant's critique of pure reason that treats cognitive judgments as instances of determining sensible intuitions by subsuming them under concepts. Instead of conforming to this pattern, of conceptually grounded discursive cognition, the sense of music arises out of the inner coherence of the musical system itself. Hanslick's statement about music following its own musical sense serves to show that he doesn't take the conceptual perspective on the world to be exclusive. Instead of approaching music from a conceptual or emotional perspective, the musician and the aesthetic listener approach music by contemplating the musical forms themselves. Now this conception, conception resonates, I would like to argue, with the view that Baumgarten attributed to ancient philosophers and church fathers, namely that in addition to logic that deals with objects of conceptual knowledge, there is a distinct domain of sensibility that is the proper object of aesthetics. Now Kant famously endorsed Baumgarten's view and gave it a key role in his philosophical system. In the critique of pure reason, he started by distinguishing between transcendental aesthetic and transcendental logic and argued that cognition requires both. In his critique of the power of judgment, Kant argued further that in addition to conceptually grounded cognitive judgments, there is a class of judgments that are universally valid independently of concepts. Kant called these judgments pure judgments of taste and treated the judgment of beauty as the primary example of such a judgment. While lacking concepts, judgments of beauty make a justified claim to universal validity and even necessity because the judgments are based on the mere purposiveness of the form of the representation. The judgments of taste show their objects, for, according to Kant, not mechanistically as a cognitive judgment board by subsuming the object under a determinate concept, but artistically as an internally purposive whole, as if some will had arranged the object in accordance with a rule that cannot be conceptually explained. Echoing Kant, the view just summarized, Hanslick argues that when the composer works on musical materials, he's occupying a domain of thought independent of the domain of conceptual thought. And here is the passage. Composing is an operation of the intellect in material of intellectual capacity, Hanslick writes. Because tone combinations in whose relationships musical beauty resides are not achieved through a mechanical stringing together, but rather 
for the free creativity of the imagination, the intellectual power and individuality of that particular imagination imprint themselves on the product as character. While the goal of all art, according to Hanslick, is to externalize ideas emerging in the artist's imagination, in the case of music, the relevant idea consists of tones, not concepts, Hanslick writes. It consists of tones, not concepts, which would first have to be translated into tones. Once a musical theme has emerged in the composer's mind, the composer presents this idea in those relationships that the musical system provides. The musical beauty of the idea is, in turn, given to us in immediate aesthetic awareness of its form. Hanslick writes, this form allows no explanation other than the inner purposiveness of the phenomenon, the harmony of its parts without reference to any external third factor. So while the musical idea, a theme or a motive, resists a translation or a conceptual explanation of its content, its autonomous form is not a mere play of sensations. For precisely as mere form, the musical theme reveals something. It reveals first the thought of the composer, which after all was a musical thought to begin with, arising from the active imagination of the composer. Second, the musical theme reveals the individuality of the composer, his character, given that the musical idea arises from his imagination. The composer's individuality is not revealed by the music being a translation of his conceptual thoughts or feelings, but rather his individuality shows itself in the specific way in which he has put the shared musical rules to work in his music. These are not mere images, pictures or representations of something, not music. Rather, the process of shaping musical forms out of the materials of melody, harmony and rhythm take, takes place in the very same medium of music that we encounter when listening to the performances of the composer's work. Third, as uh, the passage just quoted uh, indicates, for Hansley, the musical theme reveals its own purposiveness, its own internal harmony. In Kant's account, that I think underlies Hanslick's view, we must assume such purposiveness in order to make sense of our system of discursive knowledge. Insofar as we are to see nature, not as a mere mechanistic aggregate of facts, but as a unified system, we must approach it from the perspective of an aesthetic judgment or a pure judgment of taste as a purposive phenomenon. And sure enough, in accordance with this Kantian view, in the first edition of his essay, removed from the later editions, Hanslick makes a claim even more grandiose than what has been said so far. After reminding the reader about the individuality of the composer leaving its mark on music, Hanslick writes, and I'm going to quote the latter part, through profound and covert relationships to nature, the significance of tones increases far above themselves and allows us at the same time to feel the infinite in the work of human talent. Because the elements of music, sound, tone, rhythm, forcefulness, gentleness, exist in the entire universe so does man discover the entire universe in music. So my proposal is that for Hanslick, the purposiveness of musical form is a sounding image of the formal features of the universe when approached aesthetically, that is, non-conceptually. If read in light of Kant's view, this way of perceiving reality 
is qualitatively different from, yet in a way on a par with, the conceptual mechanistic way of cognizing the facts of the world. So what about Wittgenstein? In the manuscript dictated to his students in 1935, and later published as the Brown Book, Wittgenstein talks about the illusion that possesses us when we listen to a musical tune. He writes, I don't know if it's here, uh, we say, when, when we have been listening to a piece of music, we say, this tune says something, and it is as though I have to find what it says. And yet I know that it doesn't say anything such that I might express in words or pictures what it says. And if, recognizing this, I resign myself to saying it just expresses a musical thought, this would mean no more than saying it expresses itself. So just like Hansley, Wittgenstein denies that the content of the tune, whatever it is that the tune says, could be translated into words or pictures. And he concludes that given this impossibility of translation, the content of the tune is a musical thought, which amounts to saying that the musical tune expresses itself because the tune and the thought stand in a constitutive relation. The punchline is that we cannot say what the musical tune expresses as it only expresses or shows itself. In section 527 of the Philosophical Investigation, from which I quoted above, Wittgenstein repeats the point that I should not be able to say what a musical theme is about. All I can do is to compare the theme with something else that has the same pattern. The immediate context of these remarks is Wittgenstein's alignment between the understanding of music and the understanding of language, which of course for Wittgenstein is the main, main philosophical interest. In Wittgenstein's view, the two, the understanding of music and the understanding of language, are more like one another than one is inclined to think. Earlier in the Brown book, the same point is explained as follows. But I don't mean that understanding a musical theme is more like the picture which one tends to make oneself of understanding a sentence. But rather that this very picture is wrong and that understanding a sentence is more like what happens when we understand a tune that at first sight appears. For understanding a sentence, we say, points to a reality outside the sentence, whereas one might say, understanding a sentence means getting hold of its content, and the content of, of the sentence is in the sentence. Now, I read this remark as suggesting that music exemplifies the possibility of a sentence or a tune being comprehensible in spite of resisting translation. In the Philosophical Investigations, Wittgenstein expresses this point explicitly by writing, we speak of understanding a sentence in the sense in which it can be replaced by another which says the same, but also in the sense in which it cannot be replaced by another any more than a musical theme can be replaced by another. In the latter case, in the case where the, what the sentence says cannot be replaced by another, what matters is, as Wittgenstein writes, these words in these positions, that is, the internal formal purposiveness of the sentence, independently of its specific conceptual content. But this internal formal purposiveness, I want to suggest, is not only a feature of a musical tune when approached from the aesthetic perspective. It is also 
the fundamental characteristic of our language as understood by Wittgenstein as, and as suggested by the above quote. Like music, which does not yield to a mechanistic model of explanation, but requires to be described as a system constituted by its autonomous rules, so too language, when approached from the philosophical perspective, calls to be grasped as a family of structures, each of which is a unified purposive whole. This purposiveness, the purposiveness of language, is what music as a system constituted precisely by its own autonomous rules allows us to hear. Music makes available the idea of our ability to grasp language and reality independently of conceptual explanation. In this respect, I have tried to argue, Wittgenstein, as well as Hanslick, follow Kant, who argued that our relation to the world and even the unity of our system of conceptual, discursive knowledge depends on the perspective that we know most intimately from a judgment of beauty, from the perspective of aesthetics. Thank you.